0: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sanjay Gupta about his new book, World War C, Lessons from the Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. Dr. Gupta is an American neurosurgeon and serves as the Associate Chief of Neurosurgery at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Gupta is also the award-winning chief medical correspondent for CNN. Dr. Gupta, welcome to that set.
1: Uh, what a pleasure,
0: Michael. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Me as well. So you wrote this wonderful book, World War C, lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic and how to prepare for the next one. And if we could, can you tell us first a little bit about yourself and then why did you decide to write this book? Well,
1: you know, the, the, uh, the background on me, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a practicing neurosurgeon. I've always been someone who's been interested in uh, trying to educate people uh, beyond just my patients, but you know, population as a whole about health issues and scientific literacy. I got interested in it through health policy. I worked at the Clinton White House in the late 90s on health care policy and frankly thought that that's what I would be talking about primarily when I started doing television in 2001. And, um, and that was August of 2001. A, a few weeks after that, 9-11 happened. And you know, all of a sudden, I was a doctor working at an international news network in the midst of, of of the of those attacks and covering anthrax and then covering conflicts. But through it all, I've always been interested in just promoting health and scientific literacy. I wanted to write the book in in large part because of that. Uh, I, I do feel like there's been uh, a lot of lessons learned throughout this pandemic, um, even just the the uh, Thirst that people have for knowledge around the vaccines and the virus, what exactly is a virus uh, you know there's a lot of people who who have been obviously affected by this, who don't know some of the basic underlying scientific principles, and I wanted to to take the time and really put that out there in a way that I thought would be engaging and accessible to people, but then really uh, acknowledge this idea that is um, frightening but provocative as well that that so much of this could have been prevented. And and that's not to malign anyone or anything, but to say, hey, look, this is likely to happen again. So what can we do about
0: it next time based on the lessons learned this time? And in respect of that, you have four major themes in the book as I tease them out. Why weren't we ready? What went wrong and what went right? Pandemics are here to stay. And then preparing for the future, lessons that need to be learned and operationalized proof is the acronym that uh, yeah. you use. So let, let's tackle these. Why weren't we prepared? Well, in in some ways, if you were to look at some of the
1: analyses and and sort of looking at pandemic preparedness as, as a, as a world, we were the best prepared really in the world. We were ranked number one in terms of pandemic preparedness. Now, having said that, um, our overall level of preparedness had been shrinking for some time. I think it's it's really an amazing story. Back in two thousand four, President George W. Bush reads John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, and this you know a couple of years into the war on terror, just to give you an idea of what's going on in the country at that point. But uh, President Bush is is concerned enough that he basically says to his homeland security team, Fran Townsend hey, look, we need to do something about this. And a pandemic preparedness plan was born. And it was pretty good. I mean, I looked at this plan. I discussed it with people who were in charge of preparedness at the time, like people like Dr. Robert Cadillac and said, wow, there was a lot here supporting virus hunters in in the field and working on universal vaccines, bolstering up public health. But I think what happened over time, over the last you know, decade and a half was that we hadn't had a significant pandemic like the one Barry describes from 1918. Um, and, you know, after a while you think, well, do we need to keep investing this money in prevention if this may not happen? It's kind of a standard human sort of foible. I mean, we do this with our own personal health as well. I'm eating right and I'm exercising every day for what? You know, I'm fine. I'm healthy. Why don't I, you know, have some fun and not worry about those rules as much? It's, it's in some ways very predictable. So I think over time, our preparedness started to, to diminish to some extent. Um, and I think that that leads into, you know, basically the genesis of what went wrong and what went right after that. Uh, it was that idea of we don't anticipate this happening or if it does being that big a deal.
0: Dr. Robert Kedlick, he wrote that hubris. Was the cause of death in the, in this autopsy that we thought of ourselves as being more prepared than we were. Is that fair? I,
1: I think it's, it's, it's very fair. And I spent a lot of time talking to him and he was one of these guys that was there for a long time. I mean, we have an Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response in the United States. That is their job, to prepare for things that most people don't see coming. Oftentimes, you know, natural weather events, hurricanes and things like that, but also things like a pandemic. And I think that there was this belief that, hey, you know, We're a wealthy country. We're the United States. These types of outbreaks, they affect countries that don't have our resources. We don't really have to worry about it. And what it translated down to in terms of human behavior is we don't really have to wear a mask. We don't really have to lean into these basic public health things, right? Because we can wait for the pill, the the shot, whatever it is. We can wait for the knockout, home run, touchdown, whatever you want to call it because that's typically what saves, you know, citizens in a place like the United States. We wait for science to rescue us. So that was the hubris. Um how many lives would have been saved if those basic public health practices would have been more strictly, you know, uh, adhered to. Initially it's it's hard to say, although modeling studies and people like Deborah Burke say the vast majority of deaths could have been prevented and I find that part, you know, the most heartbreaking of all.
0: Yeah, and we were lucky. I was looking at the the case fatality rate. And COVID-19 had a case fatality rate of 2.5%, which according to you know statistics, Ebola was at 50%, MERS at 34%, SARS at 10%. So in some sense, we were very lucky. You predicted in 2018 that a pandemic was coming. Um, whether it was a bird or a bat or a pig, it didn't really matter. You said hmm. it's coming we were lucky that it turned out to be, I mean, lucky is a funny word, but we were lucky that it was COVID-19 with a death rate of 2.5. Can you imagine if it was H5N1 with a mortality rate of 60%? How many Americans would have been dead? How many global citizens would have been dead?
1: That Those are the cataclysmic sort of numbers that, you know, people have been worried about. I mean, when people predicted another pandemic, I wasn't, the only one by means a lot of people were saying this, and part of it was for all these different reasons right there do these things come in cycles so let me get this straight there was one in nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen there was another one in sixty eight sixty nine that was fifty years later what 's fifty years after that? oh, two thousand and nineteen turns out there was another pandemic at that point, but not not a flu pandemic a a coronavirus but I think that the the idea of of how much worse this could have been. And we don't really even still know the mortality sort of infection fatality rate. It's probably under 1% if you take it across the board, right? Older and younger and everybody. Um, Flu to give you context is around 0.1%. So this is probably five to 10 times worse than that, which is what people were were concerned about. But even if you had applied the previous coronavirus Outbreak from SARS 2013, 10% fatality rate, as you mentioned. I mean, Michael, it, it's, it's, it would have been catastrophic and apocalyptic probably for the world. We, we don't, and I don't say that to frighten people, but many of these virologists, the reason they're sort of scratching their heads is they're saying this wasn't even the black swan event. This was bad. Don't get me wrong, but so much of this could have been prevented. If you get a very highly transmissible virus that has a high fatality rate, higher fatality rate, I should say. Um, that the, the basic public health stuff that we didn't do, if we didn't do it in that that context,
0: uh, who who knows how many millions of people would have died? You wrote something which I thought was really fascinating. You wrote that if you are dealing with something truly novel, mm. the coronavirus. They call it the novel Corona. If you were dealing with something truly novel, it makes sense to bring in people from completely different walks of life because they don't immediately fall into the trap of trying to incorrectly place that novel thing in a familiar box. The primary cause of death, therefore, in your um, estimation, was multi-system organ failure, Mm -hmm. ranging from poor health to our inflated sense of readiness, I think that's yeah. pretty significant stuff. Can you take us through that a bit more? Well, you know, first of all when it comes to something novel, I,
1: let, let me preface by saying I this is in no way to diminish the value of expertise and experience and all those things. But I but what sort of really struck me as I was talking to a lot of behavioral psychologists and people who study pandemics and study human behavior is this idea that if you have uh, a certain expertise in an area as soon as you see something that 's starting to to form in this case a pandemic or you know an outbreak initially in Wuhan and you 're getting some of the characteristics, you immediately look for pattern recognition. oh, coronavirus from China. I know that that 's SARS. I remember that, and here 's what happened with SARS. It was terrible, but ultimately around eight thousand people in the world became infected in total. 800 people died. Uh, this is going to follow that pattern, right? Because you put it in that context box or other people may say, well, it's looking like a pandemic. Oh, pandemic. The most recent pandemic was actually in 2009. And, and, um, I remember that that was the, you know, swine flu and it was terrible. 60 million people became infected in the United States in one year. But it had a 0.02% mortality rate, much, much less deadly than flu. So this will fall into that box. And a lot of people are doing that. Uh, that's where the, a lot of the conversation came about where they said, oh, this will just sort of wither away. It'll just go away. Well, the reason people were saying that, including the president, was because people were saying, well, that's what happened with SARS. This is also a coronavirus from China. No, the same thing is likely to happen here. And that's, that's a trap. We don't deal with novel things very well as adults. Kids do this all the time. Everything is wondrous and new. It's it's kind of joyous to watch their faces as they are constantly learning. But for adults, when is the last time you experienced something for the first time? It doesn't happen very often. And even when you're experiencing something for the first time, you immediately contextualize it into the rest of your life. And sometimes novel things are just that. They're just novel. It would almost be better if you didn't call it by something that immediately took your mind to pre-existing knowledge. Like novel virus. This was more like an alien invader from another planet than it was a pathogen that already pre-existed on planet Earth. If we thought about it that way, I think uh, our approach may have been different. Tabula Rosa. Let's just take the information as it comes in and respond to that as opposed to trying to predict, uh, sometimes incorrectly, where this is going to go. And by the way, an alien invader probably would have galvanized the world much more so than what we saw with this virus, which seemed to divide us in ways that were,
0: frankly, shocking. And it led to what you call, uh, in a sense, pandemic denialism, that we just denied the reality of what was before us because of either hubris or misinformation or it can't happen to us because we're America. And then we had a president who, in my description, refused to be a wartime president. You properly say if this was an alien attack, all of the heads of the major and minor countries around the world would band together and figure out how do we defend our planet in the second world war, uh, FTR had his radio speeches and Churchill had his speeches and we had nothing to fear but fear itself when we gathered together. Here we didn't have a president who, he was more like Woodrow Wilson in the, in the 1918, um, mm-hmm. uh, pandemic. He just f- refused to, um, participate, which lead, leads us both to conclude that the saddest part of this was it was, preventable or its duration could have been shortened. Is that, is that a fair description? I
1: think no question on the last point about it. It's being largely preventable. I mean, not entirely, but you know, uh, people like Deborah Burks will say after the first surge that we saw in the spring of 2020, almost all the deaths she said after that could have been prevented, which again is just heartbreaking because I, I know people who have died. And I know people who got really, really sick and are still suffering today. And I think once, you know, once you've been affected by that personally, I mean, it it, I think it really does uh, leave an impression on you. But I think in terms of the, the the wartime president. um I I, this is a this is a really fundamental point. I I, I think that the first of all, there was not really any recent precedent for this sort of thing. Like if there is a provocation from a foreign country, we have precedent for that. We people may handle it differently, but there's some context for that. For a pandemic of this magnitude, we really had no recent context. So for the most part, what it became was a balance uh, of public health versus economic health of the country. That was always the sort of, that that was the pivot point, you know, for for the inflection point for a lot of the, the decisions that were getting made. And again, if you just look at human behavior, I as a doctor oftentimes have to go tell patients tough news to hear. And I don't want to tell them that I, you know, it gives me no joy to tell them that, but part of me thinks that, My some of my greatest value is the honesty that I can provide for them, because maybe they're not getting that in other parts of their life. Other people will be like, you're going to power through it. You'll be fine. Don't worry about this when it comes to an illness. And I think you could sort of extrapolate that to the country as a whole. I think that the idea that it was such an opportunity for a country that was ranked as the number one pandemic prepared country in the world to rise to that challenge and not only save a lot of lives, but set an example for the rest of the world that was that was where I thought we were headed that 's where I thought we were headed the early days like I, this is terrible what 's happening, but this is in some ways uh this is where public health can really can really shine and show what they 're capable of doing because so much of their work is invisible you don 't know how effective their work is because if nothing happens you don 't realize the the tentacles that went into making nothing happen but that 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 obviously wasn 't the approach that was taken in this country, and it 's you know It's, it's a shame. I, I I will tell you, maybe this will come up later, but when you frame it as a wartime sort of thing, I think there's something really important in that, in that phrasing and that, and that mindset. Um, we spend a lot of money on national defense every year. And most of the times it's not really money that is tangibly being used. There's not an obvious threat. And yet we are prepared for threats. And that's part of, you know, a decision that we uh, come to as a country. And there's, there's little you know, funding debates here and there, but for the most part, we are uh, best prepared military in the world. If we don't litigate these decisions in the moment when it comes to defense, and I think we may have to start thinking about pandemics the same way. If we think about this more from a Department of Defense sort of posture, rather than a naturally occurring weather event, it's going to come, we're going to have to shelter in place, there's nothing you can do about it, it's preordained. If our mindset shifted, so this just became what it is, we are just prepared, and we will go into these modes automatically without having to have public discourse and debate about everything that costs us precious time and and lives. I think there may be a, a, a real opportunity there To to get us to this place where we don't ever have to really suffer through a,
0: a, a new pathogen like we did this time. I think that's exactly right. And if you look back at the Bush plan when he established the Office of Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, the budget for that was $10 billion, less than one naval aircraft carrier. So if you had that as a recurring budget line item, then we 're actually prepared we 're not um having to catch up after the fact of the realization that we 're in a in a pandemic
1: that 's right it, it just it goes into effect right away, and sometimes it 's sort of invisibly going into effect as soon as you know you started i mean the the, the intelligence you can gather. It was really striking when I dug into this. I mean, the number of cars that are in the emergency room parking lot at any time, the number of Google searches for headache, cough, sore throat, these types of things are being tracked constantly. And they are these these forerunners of, of something that is starting to bubble up, a potential outbreak. Wait, why are all these people searching for cough and headache in September or October? That's a month earlier than they typically start to see those increase in searches. Why are the ER parking lots fuller than we normally see them? Why are people buying more decongestants at the store? There's all these clues, you know, uh, that that start to to emerge, and we don't really pay attention to those things now. They're kind of an interesting point, but typically it's academics who are doing this as part of research projects, as opposed to the federal government saying, "Hey, this is what it means to be totally." tuned in to what's happening around the world and to prevent something like this from happening again. Investing in universal vaccine platforms. So you take one flu shot and that's it. It's universal. It protects you against the strains of flu that are coming in in the decades uh, to come. Same thing with the coronavirus. There are people who are now working on these universal vaccine platforms, but some of that money, once it's spent and you develop these things, you don't have to keep doing it over and over again. So it probably start to actually get cheaper per person over time. And uh, it's 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 really quite remarkable and doable. I mean, there's a lot of hard problems to fix in the world, but this is one that seemed very
0: doable and, and you can get your hands around it. The thing that was interesting to me in reading the book is that you would detail um, in in painstaking detail the, the what went wrong domestically. But you also have a lot of conversation about what went wrong globally. And this is a global pandemic. So maybe you can talk before we get to what went right and and um, what we do to protect ourselves in the future. But there was a global failure, whether it was lack of authority in the World Health Organization to overcome national objections or the inability of governments to act effectively through the G20. So what did you learn and what should we learn about global preparedness?
1: I, I think the the biggest thing there's there's a lot there, but I think the biggest thing is that we do not have a a world health organization that is empowered to really act uh, solely on behalf of the world. Um, this is a organization that has become very beholden to uh, funding sources like uh, like most organizations, and with that they've lost a lot of their their teeth, their mandate teeth to actually. Uh, actually intervene, do things um, uh, in terms of actually trying to curb a pandemic, or do things in terms of trying to investigate, for example, the origins of the pandemic. So the World Health Organization is a very important organization. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that it not be there. I'm suggesting it be empowered to do the job that I think most people think a World Health Organization does. Um, we, I, th- I don't think very many people realize what the limits of, of an organization like that are is it's not like the UN of health. This is a, a, a frequently cash strapped organization that uh, is very reactionary and um, gets, you know, as we saw, like everything else, got mired in, in politics uh, throughout this pandemic. And I think that really eroded some of the trust that people have in that organization. I think that the fact that countries didn't come together may be less surprising but sort of an indication of when it comes to health issues the effectiveness of the G20 is is very different than we think about it for other issues some may argue that there there's not as much effectiveness in some other areas of society as well but health is often a black box to people just that, that, you know global leaders don't really they're not typically well versed in in understanding viral outbreak uh you know a pandemic they're 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 well versed in understanding uh how chaos uh, can sort of uh, disseminate you know due to violence whatever it may be but when it comes to a virus it still feels nebulous to most people and i think that that's led to a lot of skepticism and people not trusting each other and ultimately an inability for these big countries to work as closely together as they probably should have
0: yeah. And I think that this notion that you point out of the international authority lacking the ability to overcome national objections in the health space. You know, you think about uh, searching for uh, atomic reactors and other things, th- th- that organization, um, the atomic, whether it's the Atomic Energy Commission or whatever the international thing of it, they have a right to go in. Right. They they have authority to overcome national objection. If you're going to go look for weapons of mass destruction, you you can go in. World Health Organization has to ask permission. And so in this case, China, for example, was very slow to, to give permission.
1: I mean, they, they didn't really give permission ever, you know, uh, completely. Uh, certainly not in the beginning days, despite uh, a lot of offers of help, including from Robert Redfield, who's a CDC director, talking to his counterpart, George Gao in China. Um, uh, Alex Azar, who was the health secretary, talking to his counterpart, and even President Trump, um, you know, trying to pave the road for, you know, U.S. investigative teams and teams that could actually help curb the pandemic to go in. It, it wasn't that China was incapable of curbing the pandemic. They, they, I mean, they shut down Wuhan, which was incredible. I mean, that was the first sign to me that there may be far more going on here than we're even being told when you shut down a city of 11 million people. So it wasn't they were not capable of doing this. It was more like, how bad is this really? You're telling us it's, you know, maybe some human to human transmission. Um, uh, but the, but the message was, you know, don't. Don't really worry about this. And then you you, you look up and Wuhan's being shut down, like the cognitive dissonance around that. Some of that could have been, I think, uh, ameliorated if if a World Health Organization was in there sort of as an independent, neutral arbiter saying, hey, you know, here's what's going on and here's what we need to do. And if you do this for the next three to four weeks, we probably can control this thing. You know, it's early days and we still have the the potential to control this thing. Uh, and and we, we just never got that messaging from the WHO. They never really let an independent team in. Even when they did the World Health Organization study into the origins of the pandemic, it was sort of a hand-picked team by the Chinese government. And I think that that right away threw a lot of skepticism into what the final report would show.
0: I'd like to have you just briefly address, because it's important to address it, what did we get right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the
1: thing, Michael, there was a lot that, that we also got right. I mean, you know, when I was, when I was a medical student, I remember talking to one of my professors who would always say that, you know, uh, in the battlefield is when some of our greatest medical, you know, advancements are made Um, because you have to, your backs up against the wall. You don't have a lot of options. And all of a sudden you're doing things that all of a sudden propel medicine forward, you know, in my world of neurosurgery, uh, our ability to take care of catastrophic head injuries is very different than it was even 25 years ago, in large part because of what we learned in the wars of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Um, this pandemic in some ways was that as well. I mean, it, there was no, there was no really obvious solution. The vaccine would be a solution, but everything that you heard is that it would just take a, a, a while. The fastest that it had ever been done was four years in, you know, to, to create a vaccine. So. When, when Operation Warp Speed, uh, was sort of moving along and we were getting these, this trial data initially, um, it was pretty stunning. I mean, they got the sequence of a virus in the middle of January and by the middle of March, they were in human trials with the vaccine. That's unprecedented. And I think that has forever changed the pace of medical innovation in our world. What happened in terms of those developments will make Nothing ever seemed fast enough in the future because they were able to do something extraordinarily fast. And and I remember (laughs) these soft-spoken, very, you know, humble scientists who I've been talking to on a very regular basis throughout the pandemic, you know, just not at all prone to hyperbole, just always measured in their words, you know. Uh, not not they wouldn't use a modifier ever you know uh, in in their language they're just so careful and they call me up one day these two scientists from the west coast and they said sanjay this was the moonshot this was the moonshot and i said oh come on that sounds audacious hyperbolic even no no you don't understand how big a deal this is that this worked and so it it is, it is incredible. And a lot of people deserve credit for that. It's obviously the scientists first and foremost, but I think that they were really enabled and empowered through things like Operation Warp Speed to do that. You know, um, there was, uh, for for various reasons, not all the company accepted money directly, but they clearly had the support and knew that if they got this right, these vaccines would be utilized and distributed and, and, purchased by governments all over the world. So that was really incredible. And I will say that I think almost without a question, the makers of mRNA technology will win the Nobel Prize for this. And it will be used for things other than just preventing infections. The the husband-wife team of BioNTech, Uhar Sahin and Aslam Tureci a fascinating couple if you don't know their story they're just they're wonderful wonderful people i've had a chance to interact with them a few times all via zoom <laughs> throughout this pandemic but they they um were were working on using this sort of technology for cancer they were basically trying to use messenger rna to make cancer cells express a protein on their surface that the immune system would then attack so it's sort of like the, the messenger RNA is putting a flag, a red flag on these cancer cells saying, Hey, I'm over here. Come get me. And because these cancers were kind of being invisible to the immune system and mRNA was going to change that. And then they pivoted completely as they, as they saw what was happening in, in China. And now over the next year, they'll probably start to do that cancer work again. And I'm pretty confident, although, you know, like you, I don't like to make predictions about the future, but I, I, I'm I pretty confident that we're going to see some really interesting developments in that world. So that's a really good thing that came out of this pandemic. And I will say as well that, you know, the, the public-private partnership when it came to testing and things like that was important. We saw, I think, for the for the first time for a lot of people, the limitations of what a federal government can do. What is the obligations, not just the role, but the obligations of the private sector in the midst of something like this, a pandemic. And there were many private organizations that really stepped up, creating testing, surging testing, um, you know, um, uh, creating the raw ingredients for these various therapeutics and vaccines, all that sort of stuff. And then, I, you know, I, I will just say on a personal note, there's some really good people out there. Michael I mean I remember early days I, I went to the grocery store this is early days of the pandemic and I was uh, going to open a, a handle on the door and the guy right before me uh, wiped the handle down as he went through it he just wiped it down for me and now as we subsequently learned this virus doesn't spread as easily through surfaces but we didn't know that at the time and this was a person who who just wanted to be kind. And there, as, as much as we talk about some of the, the, the darker aspects of human behavior here, there were some really, really incredible moments as well when it came to, to, to random acts of kindness like that.
0: Yeah. Kirsten Powers, who I'll speak to later in, in the week has a new book called Saving Grace. And she mm-hmm. says that really what we need is more grace, not in the Christian paradigm necessarily, but grace, humility, kindness, forgiveness in our lives if we're going to move forward as a country. I think she's spot on on that. And we saw some of that, as you say. We saw some examples of that um, throughout the pandemic, which is heartwarming.
1: Yeah, and I I would say, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I would say that the majority of people probably, the majority are like that. Um, they do want to take care of each other. Uh, they're not so insular or selfish as to believe that it's just about them. They recognize that a contagious disease is a different sort of entity rather than other threats with which we may deal or risk assessments that we have to make. But, you know, it's, it's I, I think what was shocking a little bit was this idea that we only evolve as a human species if we all take care of each other. We got that right. This was never about rugged individualism. That was a catchphrase. This was always about reciprocal altruism. If you didn't get that right, we were doomed. And, you know, Isaac Asimov, again, going back to the science fiction writing, I mean, his his stories always had some component of the greatest threat to mankind is mankind. Like We can make up all these other threats, but ultimately, you know, I have seen the enemy and it is us. Right. And and that is a lesson. And that is not a thing that people should hear in despair. That is a lesson, which is why I think codifying some of how we respond to things as opposed to having to litigate it each single time, I think, can help obviate some of those problems. You have to count on humans are going to to not always behave in ways that you can predict. So, so, so institutionalize some of it. Don't, don't create another branch of government. I'm not saying that but institutionalize some of these scientific principles that we know to be right. And sometimes a scientific principle is as simple as, Hey, I'm about to drive around a blind corner. So instead of hitting the accelerator, I'm going to pump the brakes over bit." It could be as simple as that because I don't know what lies around that. And I'm just going to be careful because I'm riding in the car, but so is the rest of the world or at least the rest of the country.
0: The scariest part of the book for me was your Observation, and I think, correctly so, that pandemics are here to stay. That the notion that, well, this will be over soon—we have the vaccines, and now we have a infection after infection pill, which will mitigate the severity of the illness. So it seems like we're back to where we thought we would be at the beginning. Science will just give us that pill. We'll take the pill, <laughs> our headache will go away, and then you know we'll be back. To life as normal, but not so. There are warning signs, persistent poverty, environmental uh, degradation and, and other things that really indicate the shrinking of natural habitats so that humans are living closer to animals like bats that, that spread disease that therefore indicate the probability and I don't think it's possibility, I think it's probability, as you write, that we're in a pandemic phase of our existence. And so can you talk a little bit about the pandemic sort of here to stay and the root cause of, of this pandemic problem? And then we'll get to what do we need to do to, to mitigate
1: this? Sure. Well, I think, I think there's two fundamental points when people talk about the pandemic era. One is that, um, you know, we are still a relatively young planet, and we are increasingly coming in contact with other living or, or things like viruses, which aren't really living, but other pathogens that have been here for a long time, but we've been kind of siloed off from them. Uh, as we grow population-wise and increasingly encroach on these animal habitats, these jumps, if you will, from animals to humans will happen more and more often. They're happening all the time right now. Um, and the vast majority, vast, vast majority of them are harmless. They don't cause any kind of illness, or you wouldn't even know that you have a, a microbe in your body that actually jumped from an animal to a human. You wouldn't know that because it causes, you no no ill effects, but sometimes they can, as we've seen with, you know, this, this particular coronavirus, those jumps are going to happen more. And just by statistics, the more they happen, the more likely you are going to get ones that are going to cause disease. That's true. We know that these are the emerging novel pathogens, and there are entire, you know, medical systems devoted to this. People who are out in the field right now, surveilling bats, uh, trying to figure out, hey, what does this bat got in it? Could that be a potential pathogen of concern for humans? You know, th- this is happening right now. So we 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 have to anticipate that these these novel emerging pathogens will grow in number, and then you add into that that when it comes to a pandemic. That the the entire world has to sort of be insulated in the way that I'm describing, because if you get significant outbreaks of disease anywhere in the world, they can become significant outbreaks of disease everywhere in the world. That was something that changed even between 2009 and now. It didn't change, but it, it amplified. Global travel um, almost uh, doubled over the la- over those ten years between 2009 and 2019 just in 10 years. And it's obviously continued to grow at a, at a fast paced now. I mean, it's been sort of down because of the pandemic, but people are starting to travel again. And if there are new pathogens in a certain part of the world, you have to anticipate that they will spread all over the world. So those two things in combination, I think are why people think we may be entering the pandemic era, as many people have called it. I I, I just want to be clear though, because these novel pathogens will continue to emerge the idea they have to turn into a pandemic of this magnitude that is not preordained that is not i mean we have the tools already so many of them at least to to prevent that from happening those we will increasingly see these pathogens but it doesn't mean it has to turn into a pandemic
0: right and you have a prescription the acronym of which is proof p r o o f which tells us essentially um, what we should be doing. Because you write, an outbreak anywhere in the world is an outbreak everywhere in the world, exactly to the point that you, you, you just made, um, and that we need collectivism and information sharing and mandatory um, verification types of protocols. But take us through proof, plan, um, and prepare is 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 P. So tell us tell us about what we sh- what sh- what should we be doing? It's, I feel like I'm in your doctor's office saying, "All right, doctor, you've told me the situation. What's my what's the prescription?" And so yeah. your prescription is proof. And tell us about it, please.
1: So so yeah, I you know I tried to make this something that people could could remember. And there's a lot there's a lot of subtext to to all of these points. But P is to plan ahead. And, and this is, I think, what we've been talking about a fair amount, Michael, this idea that if we plan ahead for something that we can't yet see, can't feel, don't have any context for it, have to assume will be novel, all of that. How do we plan ahead for something like that? How do we, um, you know, again, maybe approach this from a governmental standpoint at the level of a defense-like strategy, but also planning ahead, uh, within your own, your own family? Like having these conversations ahead of time. For a lot of families, this is the first time they'd ever thought about something like this. There are some families that are preppers and they do things to prep for any kind of potential chaos, but when it came to a pandemic, it wasn't something that most people really had ever given it a thought. Um, R is really about reorganizing how you evaluate risk. I found this this super interesting and and in enlightening in a way for me, because I think oftentimes um when I'm disseminating uh, information or knowledge, and you do the same thing, you have a perception of how people are interpreting that. And so you're giving objective data. And so you think, well, this objective data. So there you have it. So I I, I tell the story in the book, you know, I was doing a zoom call with a bunch of superintendents once for a story that I was working on and screen full of faces. And um, somebody asked me at that point, like, what did the mortality rate look like at that point. And nobody knew for sure, but I threw out the number based on some data that was coming out of China, that maybe around 0.5% at that point. And I remember like just seeing the, the difference in people's reactions. Um, there was half the reactions was like, uh, like hand over mouth, like what? 0.5% mortality. So you're telling me one in 200 people could die you know, I live in a town of four thousand people. You're telling me twenty of the people that live in my town would die of this. I'm saying, well, you know, that's that's 99.5 percent survival equals 0.5 percent mortality. The other group of people on the same call would say, so you're saying I'm 99.5 percent good, right? What is the big deal here? What is the big deal? Uh, it's not again, it's not an indictment of one way of thinking over the other. If you were a frontline worker and you had to work to be able to, you know, feed yourself. Maybe you were much more willing to accept 99.5%. Uh, if you could stay at home and do Zoom calls, why would you risk a one in 200 chance of death? You know, it, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Same objective data. You have to account for people's subjective interpretations of it. But I think, you know, evaluating risk, not in the throes of a pandemic is a good exercise for people to go through. Do it with your family. Do it with your friends. It'll give you an idea of how you value things uh, and and how you would approach things. The two O's um, organize your family. And I mean, you know, these are discussions about would you put your parents in a long-term care facility um, given all that we saw here? What about kids' schools? How will you approach that? How will you think about that? I think a lot of people felt very ill prepared for that. The other O is for optimizing health. I mean, This is the one I think did not get nearly enough attention. And maybe that's the situation. If someone comes into the hospital with a heart attack, you're not necessarily, you know, your first order of business is not to cut down on their cheeseburger consumption. But we are not a healthy country. And and what strikes me right now is when we we, we talk about who is at most risk based on, you know, pre-existing health conditions, about 89% of the country would have a risk factor that would put them at increased risk. It's almost the entire country. It's crazy. And we typically think of optimizing our health to prevent a future heart attack or whatever. I think what this pandemic taught us is that optimizing health now can help you now. Boosting your immunity now. Most people say, I want to boost my immunity. They have no idea how to do it. What does that even mean, boost your immunity? Well, I wanted to know, and I talk to people who do this all the time, even not During a pandemic, and it's fascinating how we actually think about boosting immunity and optimizing health. And then F was really the fight for the future, which, which is more of a global proposition. This idea that, yeah, you could become pandemic proof as a country that is wealthy and represents 4% of the world's population, but you have to understand that unless you fight for the future of all of us, that when it comes to pathogens, they do not respect Borders and boundaries, and they, they will cross over and, and, and create chaos wh- wherever they can.
0: Yeah, you, you write something in the fight for the future, which is pandemics unmask who we really are, <laughs> our morals, our values, our ethics, our humanity, and that the bottom line is that we really are in this all together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the just very practical part of that again, which is a pathogen. It doesn't care. It really doesn't care if you're living in the United States or you're living in Somalia, it it can spread, but I did find it interesting. Um, Michael, I hadn't, you know, my parents are both living still, they live in Florida and we would, in some ways it was interesting. We, We, we talked more than we ever had, even though we didn't get to see each other and my parents would insist on, um, Face timing whenever we called. So we actually got to see each other <laughs> and I only bring that up because, you know, I ended up having a lot of conversations with my parents and we're Indian, Indian family and, and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a reverence in many cultures, including ours for the elderly. You know, we, we, uh, we embrace their value and, and, and all that and respect their judgment and constantly lean on them, not not despite they're getting older, but because they're older, because they have that. And there was this, there was this fascinating experiment that I wrote about in the book called the moral machine experiment, which basically it's a long sort of preamble, but the basic gist of it was it was an experiment designed to figure out which sector or which group of people in a society would be most likely to be sacrificed if they had to be uh, in the midst of some chaotic, terrible situation. And you, you come to find out than many countries around the world, older people are high on the list. Their value to society is not seen as, as important. It was different in Asian countries, um, South Korea, uh, for example, which was a country that did really well during this pandemic. And I just think the the question that kept coming back to me is if in the beginning, the through line on this was this is a virus that predominantly affects young people predominantly affects teenagers and the mortality rates that we were worried about with older people. Those are the mortality rates we were seeing in younger people. If that had been the case, would the United States have approached this differently? Would we have approached it differently because this was, you know, young people as opposed to old. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I, but I think so. I think they would have. And, and that's part of, you know, really understanding what we value, who we value I think the pandemic did unmask, if you will, a lot of
0: that. I think you wrote something. I think that's absolutely right. And it does cause us to have to think about who we are as a society, as you write, our morals, our values. You wrote something which I found really interesting from your perspective as a doctor, that medical school education has to change to include how people will react and behave and under siege from a disease because ultimately that is a big part of ending it so can you talk about that because this is this ongoing education um, obligation that that the pandemic has brought to um the forefront
1: yeah this is this is a, a i think a really fundamental point and maybe one of the most um uh newly intuitive things that i that I sort of grappled with during this pandemic and and, and it is this idea that i, I I think that we always think, and especially as docs and science world, that if we present the rationale, present the logic uh, of why the recommendations are being made, and we're honest about it, that that'll win the day. That people will be convinced by that and say, "Okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's what we should do." But it's it's not the case across the board. Uh, you know, we know even within our medical practices, you could have a hundred people with the same diagnosis here is the best treatment plan. And there'll be a certain percentage who say, no, thanks. I'm going to pass on that. And and you have to, uh, you can try to convince some of those people and you should. I'm not saying give up on that because if it is the best course of action, you should do everything you can. But I think you have to accept that there may be some people who just won't be convinced. They just won't. And instead of maligning them and, and uh, shaming them and all that, um, y- y- if you account for that, I think it'll allow you to, to better create plans that are going to move society forward as a whole. Not everyone's going to agree and you have to accept that as opposed to saying, I'm going to spend 90% of my energy trying to get every single last person to agree. If you are, get comfortable with the idea that not everyone will agree and you're, you're okay with it, even if you don't agree with it, you're okay with them, uh, then I think it'll, it'll more, more strongly lead you to an outcome that is beneficial for society. I will say as well that when it comes to many of these people who, who don't agree, like well, I'm not going to get vaccinated, whatever it may be. I've been spending a lot of my time over the past month going and talking to audiences that probably aren't watching CNN. They're probably not hearing a lot of these messages. They're getting their news and their information from sources that are different and what strikes me is some of them are just, they're just chaos creators. That is their, that is their, you know, that's their currency. They don't have strong feelings on anything. They just want to, to, to create chaos and so doubt. But there are some Michael who sort of see themselves, I think as the guardians of the galaxy, they see themselves as the people who, Hey, you guys are all missing it. I see this. You're all missing it. And, and I'm here to to protect you to wave a big flag and say, hey you guys i i 'm just trying to help you here don 't take that vaccine that'll kill you whatever it may be don 't take a pharma product take you know ivermectin instead or whatever it may be they aren 't telling you this you know now th- there 's all kinds of there 's all kinds of things baked into that, but their motivation as to why they 're doing it is is as heterogeneous as I think as we see on in in other sectors of our society. Not everyone who is a vaccine denialist is doing it for the same reasons. Um, and I, I, I just find that interesting. I find that uh, worth exploring. And I think there's lessons in there going forward. The biggest one, you have to anticipate that it's going to be there. I mean, there were measles outbreaks before this pandemic. Fully, fully preventable measles outbreaks. And these were parents who weren't vaccinating their kids and while it was political then as well it was a different politics while vaccine denialism tends to be older and more conservative now it was young and liberal when it came to measles so there's always something there and to simply act shocked and surprised each time it happens is not a strategy that's just being reactionary so you have to anticipate that there's going to be a certain percentage you can even put a number on it maybe you know 10 to 20% of the country that is always going to have deep-rooted skepticism and suspicion of anything that is coming from a large institution, the
0: government, you name it, and, uh, and account for that. Yeah, you build it into your risk assessment. Yes, and then you, exactly. And then you can go forward from that, knowing that it's a data point that you have to accommodate. Last question for you. Uh, you write, the ultimate good news is what we learn from this pandemic will undoubtedly change all of our lives. The hope is that we will learn how to do better, respond as a world, as nations, as individuals. So, do you think we can achieve that? I, I really
1: do think we can achieve that. I I'm, I'm I think we, in fact, were had been in good position, uh, you know, for some time. It, it wasn't even you know brand new scientific developments that could have put us in that that position. But I think that, um, you know, from a pure science level, um, what we learn from this pandemic will really undoubtedly better prepare us for future pathogens. I mean, you can make one of these vaccines in, you know, weeks instead of years. That's that's incredible. I mean, it really is. I, I again, I, I don't know. I'm always careful. I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but that's that's a really big deal. It could change how we think about therapeutics. It could change about how we think about preventing disease, uh, or even treating early disease like cancers. So that, that, that scientific learning, uh, and development, I think will benefit all of humanity, uh, you know, to come. But I also think this last point that we're talking about in terms of human behavior. I mean, well, you know, maybe we thought that, you know, that, that virus was going to be like an alien invader and we would all come together and bound together in solidarity against this foreign entity, this, this alien entity. And we didn't. And there's, there's got to be lessons in there. There's, there's gotta be really important lessons in there. Some of it may be, as we were saying at the beginning of this podcast, don't allow a system that, that allows you to litigate and, and, uh, undermine everything that you've already learned by, by not codifying it in some way. So maybe that's a, a, a big lesson in there. I think people have been saying that for some time. If we do that, I think we're going to be in much better position. And finally, I'll just say, I think there's a lot of muscle memory. You know, Hong Kong was a country that was probably a lot like us before SARS. Uh, they weren't likely to lean into public health practices, even though they were, you know, uh, so closely associated with China. They had a very different cultural sort of attitude toward things like masks and things like that. As soon as this thing happened, They were in mask-wearing mode right away, and it was because they got traumatized by what happened with SARS in 2003, and so that muscle memory kicked in right away. We will have some of that for a while. If we don't have another pandemic for a long time, that muscle memory will fade, but I think those three things make me truly, sincerely
0: optimistic about the future. Well, from your optimistic lips to God's ears, may we, you know... (laughs) Go forward and, and prosper. And I thank you so much for spending the time with us and for writing this wonderful book, um, which I think is a template for human behavior as we go forward into this pandemic era. Thank you, Dr. Gupta.
1: Well, M- Michael, uh, Mr. Zalden, do I call you Mr. Zalden? The, uh-huh. the, uh, thank you. Seriously. I mean, I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, if we are going to progress, uh, we need to have these conversations and we need to let people hear the nuance of this. I think people want the headlines and and I really appreciate all the preparation you're reading the book and just such a delightful conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the thoughtful discussion, Michael and Dr. Gupta. My name is Larry Parnell. I'm the program director of the George Washington University Masters in Strategic Public Relations program. Our program is pleased to sponsor this discussion today and to work with ComPro and many such discussions in the future. We are focused on providing insights and skills to our students that they can use to tackle today's problems. Learn more about our program by contacting our website. Thank you very much for a good discussion today, and we look forward to hearing from you. That said is produced by ComPro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at ThatSaidZeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.